It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes was convicted of defrauding investors in her failed blood testing startup, but the jury acquitted Holmes of defrauding patients. Juror Wayne Katz told ABC News the jury believed Holmes was one step removed from those actions. I don't believe the actions intended to hurt patients. That's the one um, hurdle I could not get past on that. Now prosecutors are trying to close that gap in their case against former Theranos president Ramesh Sunny Balwani. Joining me is Joel Rosenblatt, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. Joel, explain why Holmes got off on the patient fraud charges. So I spoke to a juror, and she made the point that they followed the jury instructions explicitly, as instructed. And they found that the prosecution just failed to connect Elizabeth Holmes, you know, all the way down to the patients. An important piece of that is that in order to be convicted of criminal fraud, you have to deprive somebody of property or money. And so the charge here is that Elizabeth Holmes deliberately, intentionally sought to deceive patients in order to get their money. And it was just too much of a reach, this juror explained. Elizabeth Holmes was operating at such a high level, and it's too much of a reach to connect her to the patient's Investors, that's something else. We saw a lot of evidence in her trial of her speaking with, you know, deliberately bringing investors in and had a lot of interaction with them. Not so with patients. The prosecution is bringing those same charges against Balwani. Do the same people testify? Is their presentation the same? The presentation is slightly tweaked and it's different in a couple of important ways, I think. One is there's a lab director who did not testify at Elizabeth Holmes's trial. There's also a regulator. This is a regulatory body that regulates laboratories, and she testified. And there's also a patient who was supposed to testify at the Elizabeth Holmes trial who testified last week. He wasn't as compelling as I thought he might be. This is a patient who suffered from kind of a varied blood platelet production and was relying on Theranos 
to get an accurate blood platelet count in order to then get the medication or take medication required to adjust that. And consistently, four to four times, his test from Theranos was wrong. That may sound kind of severe, but the consequences weren't, luckily, for him and for Theranos. But his testimony, he was kind of shaky on the facts. His understanding and memory of dates was not so good, and he just didn't come across as that compelling. As far as the patients are concerned, is the case against Belwani stronger on the facts because he was in charge of lab operations? I think that's exactly the point. I think you hit the nail on the head as to why Sonny Balwani is more vulnerable on these counts. He is inherently more vulnerable because he oversaw the laboratories, and that's just a fact. And so as a result of that role, he was more aware of not only the faulty Theranos blood test results, but all the problems that employees were pointing out about those results. So he was the first high-level executive to be dealing with those complaints. The prosecution rested its case last Thursday. Tell us how the case mirrored its case against Holmes and how it differed. Well, many of the witnesses are the same. So I would say, you know, by and large, it's the same case. There's some differences, though. I mean, one big difference was the prosecution this time around was all set to present the former CEO of Wells Fargo, who served as a director. And just because of scheduling, really, he didn't testify. Now, in the Balwani trial, he would serve the role that Jim Mattis, the former Secretary of Defense, played at the Holmes trial. Even if his testimony wasn't so compelling in terms of explaining Elizabeth Holmes's culpability, it's still just kind of riveting to have somebody of that level testifying. And here they don't have that. The scheduling didn't work out, and it seems that the government feels confident enough to just go without that, that they've presented the case they need without somebody at that level. Let's talk about his defense, that prosecutors are cherry-picking the bad results and ignoring millions of tests that work. Are they trying to show the machine worked? They're not trying to show the machine worked. They can't really do that (laughs) (laughs) because it didn't. But it's kind of the inversion. It's that it worked maybe well enough or worked as well as other laboratories. And so this is a real thing. It's called the LIST. It's a giant database that stored the blood testing results of millions of patients. And it's gone. It's just gone. And so the government says Theranos intentionally destroyed it. And Sonny Balwani argues that the government sat on the database for a long time without kind of figuring out how to revive it and let it go defunct. And so this is being litigated. To what extent Sonny Balwani can present this defense is still not completely resolved, and we're going to find out shortly. Explain his defense based on the database. The database contains uh, millions of patient results, and what Sonny Balwani is saying is many of them very good, all good results by and large. So Sonny Balwani is arguing, well, the government has picked you know, has found really through, I think through journalism, the government has found these patients who had bad test results. And they're presenting some of them as witnesses. But what Sonny is saying is there are millions more that had perfectly good test results, but we can't present that defense and the government doesn't have it. And so they're just cherry picking. They're just picking the thinnest margin of bad results to make this criminal case. We'll just never really know. As part of that, alongside that, he's also arguing that all laboratories have some mistakes. All laboratories present errors in their testing. 
and Theranos isn't different that way. There was a very good line of defense last week in which Sonny Balwani's lawyer, Jeffrey Coopersmith, cross-examined a doctor who had testified about a bad result. And he, under cross-examination, got the doctor to acknowledge that for a year leading up to this bad result, he had used Theranos with no detectable problems or bad results. That was, a, that was an effective piece of cross-examination that kind of points to this defense we're talking about. Elizabeth Holmes blamed Balwani. Is Balwani blaming Holmes? Well, so Elizabeth Holmes blamed him in kind of a more logistical way, pointing to Sonny Balwani being in charge of fundraising and finances, and responsible for the financial statements that were false, and also pointed to his role in the laboratory. But in a more, much more sensational way, of course, she pointed to him as, as abusive, sexually and psychologically abusive. Sonny Balwani is blaming Elizabeth Holmes for being the person who founded the company and started it and got it going. She was the chief executive and founder of the company long before he came on as president. That's a fact. That's true. So he is pointing to her, not in this sensational way that she did, but as the person who was the CEO and in charge. He is doing that, but more subtly. And it's a difficult argument to make because all the emails show how cooperative they were, how closely they worked together. They were, of course, intimately involved, but they were working side by side for years and really during the years where all the money started coming in. So it's difficult for him to do. Is there any chance that he'll testify? Yes, there is. You know, it's unusual for white-collar criminal defendants to testify, but Elizabeth Holmes did, of course, in a sensational way. Sonny Balwani, we don't know yet, but he testified in a civil suit by the Securities and Exchange Commission, and he could have pleaded the fifth. I've just seen over the years from depositions, from his demeanor in court, from his aggressive legal defense, he's somebody who you could imagine wants to present his side of the story. That, of course, comes with enormous risk, not the least of which is that existing testimony to the SEC. If he deviates even a little bit from that testimony, you know, prosecutors are going to jump on that. But he may just be that kind of defendant who, despite the advice of his lawyers even, will take the stand. What's happening with Elizabeth Holmes? Well, so Elizabeth Holmes is just beginning to file her arguments for sentencing. She will be sentenced in September. So that's really what we're waiting for. We will see arguments in in court filings before then. But the judge needs to evaluate kind of what happened here with Sonny Balwani. He's going to want that information, even for sentencing Elizabeth Holmes. So he's going to want to have the whole picture before he sentences Elizabeth Holmes. What is she facing? Under the investor fraud counts that she was convicted of, she faces you know up to 20 years in prison. She's likely to get about half of that, which is still really significant. The reporting initially, kind of widely initially after the verdict was that she will end up getting a few years. That's not true because of the size of the investor fraud, the amounts of money that investors were defrauded of really kicks her sentence up significantly. I don't think that she's going to get less than seven years and maybe as much as 10 or even more. We will find out. Thanks, Joel. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Joel Rosenblatt. Coming up next, the Supreme Court finds most circuit courts have been making this up. You're listening to Bloomberg. You know success when you see it or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? 
You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The Supreme Court said that nine out of the 11 circuit courts have been imposing a rule in arbitration that they basically made up. A workers' class action overtime suit against a Taco Bell franchise was going ahead in federal court for nearly eight months when the company suddenly changed tactics and moved to compel arbitration. The Eighth Circuit ruled that the fast food worker had to show that she was prejudiced or harmed by that change in tactics in order to avoid arbitration. But in a unanimous decision, the Supreme Court said that was wrong and that prejudice is not a requirement for a waiver of arbitration. In fact, Justices Elena Kagan and Neil Gorsuch addressed that point at the oral arguments. It seems a bit made up, this definition of default that you have. I mean, you say that there are certain things that count as default, missing an explicit deadline. Um, and, and But, you know, where are we getting this from? We're not getting it from... Section 4. We're not getting it from any other part of the FAA. Where does this federal common law rule come from? One thing I do know is federal procedural law, which is governed and seems to control under Section 6. And it seems to be what the Eighth Circuit was relying on, federal procedural law. It seems to be what all the other federal courts of appeals are relying on, too. And I can say, I think with some degree of certainty, that waiver, whatever else it requires in federal court and our normal procedure with respect to motions, doesn't require proof of prejudice. My guest is Richard Silberberg, a partner with Dorsey and Whitney and a director of the New York International Arbitration Center. Start by telling us about the case itself, the facts, and what happened in the courts below. Sure. So the case involves an employee of a Taco Bell franchise who signed an agreement to arbitration claims when she applied for work. 
And at some point during her employment, she concluded that the employer had violated certain federal wage and hour laws, and she commenced a lawsuit against the franchise in federal court. The employer, rather than demanding that her claim be arbitrated, as they had a right to do under the employment agreement, litigated the matter in federal court for about eight months. And when it decided that that was not productive or that it was not getting the results that it had hoped, it only then moved to compel arbitration. So the employee argued that the employer had waived the right to arbitrate by participating in the lawsuit for the preceding eight months. And the employer responded by saying that it had not waived its right to arbitrate because the employee could not show that it was harmed. And in this case, the word harmed is being equated with the legal concept of prejudice by the employer's delay in moving the case from the court to arbitration. The lower courts in this case, consistent with the prevailing view in lower courts around the country, agreed with the employer that the employee had to show harm, that is prejudice, to show that the employer waived its right to arbitrate. And in doing that, the lower courts, in effect, applied a bespoke, no harm, no foul rule for waivers to arbitrate, even though that no harm, no foul rule does not apply in ordinary commercial contracts that do not involve arbitration. So that's what the case was about. Is it surprising that this was a unanimous decision because the court is often divided in arbitration cases? I don't think it was surprising because I actually think the ruling is fairly narrow and it's not very controversial. What the court held in an opinion that was written by Justice Kagan is that there is no requirement to show harm in order to establish that a party waived a contractual right to arbitrate. And I should point out that although this arose in an employment situation, the ruling applies in all commercial litigation cases filed in federal court. Now, that last piece is important because what the Supreme Court held does not necessarily apply in state court cases that are not covered by the Federal Arbitration Act. But going back to your question, June, it is not that surprising because what the lower federal courts had been doing was creating a special rule of contract interpretation that only applied to arbitration. And what the courts pointed out is that the lower federal courts generally had misapplied prior Supreme Court precedent which had held that there is a strong federal policy favoring arbitration. Justice Kagan wrote that nine of the circuits decided to create variations of the federal procedural rules for arbitration, starting with a decision in 1968 by the Second Circuit in Manhattan, which handles a lot of business cases. Flesh that out a little more for us. So for the last decade at least, and probably going back further than that, there has been an unbroken series of cases recognizing that there is a strong federal policy favoring arbitration and that that stems from the Federal Arbitration Act. What the Supreme Court did in this case is it reminded the lower federal courts that when it said there was a strong federal policy favoring arbitration, 
it did not mean that the lower federal court should adopt, and this is Justice Kagan's language, arbitration preferring procedural rules. In other words, the fact that there's a strong federal policy favoring arbitration does not mean that the court should adopt rules that favor arbitration litigation. On the contrary, what it said that the federal court should do is treat arbitration agreements the same way that it treats other commercial contracts. And the reason that it felt the need to do that is because years ago, there was a hostility to the enforcement of arbitration agreements. And the court in these unbroken series of cases pointed out that, no, there is no hostility to arbitration agreements. They're entitled to be enforced under the Federal Arbitration Act, and therefore, courts you should enforce arbitration agreements the same way you would enforce any other contract. What the Supreme Court said is that the lower courts went too far in creating arbitration-preferring procedural rules. To put it in layman's terms, were the circuit courts basically bending over backwards to facilitate arbitration, you know, to push arbitration forward? Yes. That's what the Supreme Court, in Justice Kagan's opinion, pointed out that the lower federal courts had, in effect, bent over backwards to enforce an arbitration agreement by creating this requirement that in order to show a waiver of arbitration, the other side had to have been harmed or prejudiced by the delay in enforcing the arbitration right. And what Justice Kagan said is that uh, that should not have been permitted. There should have been no special requirement that the employee in this case needed to show in order to establish waiver. Usually, employers want to arbitrate and employees want to go to court. So it surprised me that professional organizations for both trial lawyers and arbitrators supported the employee's position here. I am not surprised in the least because particularly employment sector employers very much want to protect their right to arbitrate in order, for example, to head off class claims, class actions. And they have, for example, inserted into agreements class action waivers so that employees cannot band together in order to bring a class claim against an employer. So here, I believe that the various amicus submissions on the part of the industry were designed to encourage the Supreme Court to make arbitration easier and not to find circumstances in which arbitration had been waived by the employers litigating the case for, in this case, about eight months. Yeah, in its amicus brief, the National Academy of Arbitrators said it was concerned about the integrity of the arbitration process if the Eighth Circuit's decision stood, calling it a tactical device. Now, you mentioned before there's been this line of Supreme Court decisions favoring arbitration. Does this decision break that line, or is it sort of on another track? I don't think it breaks the line. I think what it does is two things. I think there's the narrow holding and then there's the broader holding. The narrow holding is telling parties to arbitration agreements that you had better not sit around 
and let time go by if you really want to arbitrate a claim that has been brought against you in court. It's a cautionary tale for employers and other defendants who are sued in court. They need to move promptly in order to compel arbitration if that's what they want to do. Arbitration is not going to be a fallback option if they decide they're going to try their hand at litigation in court before seeking arbitration. I think the broader holding is, as a Supreme Court, we are not going to endorse a rule that prefers arbitration over litigation when the right to arbitrate is contained in an ordinary commercial agreement. Principles of contract interpretation like waiver need to be applied uniformly whether or not there's an arbitration clause in the agreement. So in response to your question, I don't think it's a deviation from what the last 10 years or so have shown with respect to support for arbitration in the Supreme Court, but I think it is a little bit of a break on the notion that the court is referring arbitration. The court is emphasizing in this case that it is not, and that the same rules should apply to arbitration agreements as other commercial agreements. Uh, This goes back to the Eighth Circuit. What's the question the Eighth Circuit is going to be considering in this case? The Eighth Circuit has now been given the task of determining whether Taco Bell did, in fact, waive the right to arbitrate by participating for eight months in the litigation before they moved to switch the venue to arbitration. And in deciding that issue, the circuit shall not consider whether the employee was harmed or prejudiced by the eight-month delay in, uh, in trying to move the case to arbitration. So it's hard to predict what the Eighth Circuit would do, but I think that it's going to be harder for the employer to establish that it did not waive the right to arbitrate by participating in litigation for eight months. I know this is, this is not your case, but what kind of arguments can Taco Bell bring up the litigation was going forward until it, I guess there was a mediation and it, and it didn't like what happened. How can it say that it didn't waive the right to arbitrate? Well, I think they've got a tough argument ahead of them. But if, if I had to uh, predict what their arguments would be, it would be the following. Number one, they made a motion to dismiss the case in federal court because they said it was duplicative of a prior case that had already been filed. So I think they would argue that they were not seeking to substantively litigate the case in court on the merits. What they were doing is trying to engage in some judicial economy by not letting a case proceed that had, uh, for which a, a duplicative case was already pending. And then I think they would further argue that the only other thing that they did in the case, other than move to dismiss on that procedural ground, was to engage in mediation. And I think they would argue that mediating a case is not consistent with uh, a notion that they had waived the right to arbitrate. They were just trying to see if the entire case could be resolved. Thanks so much for being on the Bloomberg Law Show. That's Richard Silberberg, a partner with Dorsey & Whitney.
And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.